If you haven't been with us the last um, few weeks, and I know some of you are visitors, I'm going to give you um, four weeks of sermons in one. Uh, so you, you can thank me later for four sermons on one Sunday. And I'm going to try to be short because we want to we want to get to baptizing guys. So the regulars here are like, oh, yeah, uh, they know what's coming. But let me give you a quick um, a quick recap. We're doing this series called Emotionally Healthy Disciples, and we um, it all stems from a, an understanding that uh, we're only ever as spiritually mature as we are emotionally mature, that we are, we're whole people, and you can't separate out your life. You can't, you can't make progress in your walk with God and become like a spiritual giant and be emotionally immature and stunted and be all over the place emotionally. And so because we're whole people, we want to make progress as whole people. And so we've been looking at things. First week, we looked at the importance of looking beneath the surface, like our iceberg, and we recognized that uh, most of the action in our lives happens when no one sees the stuff. It happens in the quiet, in our own thoughts, in our own minds, in our layers of our emotions buried there. But our emotions are a gift to us because they expose what's going on in the deeper layers of our hearts. And as we pay attention to those things, and we pay attention to what our emotions reveal, uh, there's a lot that we can learn about ourselves and a lot we can encounter and learn about God in the midst of it. So first week we looked at looking beneath the surface. Second week we spoke about the importance of breaking free from the past. And you've heard some of that this morning. Uh, we all have families of origin. We all have history. We all have a past. And it's shaped us all in fundamental ways. Uh, you are in many ways a result of uh, an accumulation of experiences and relationships that you've had throughout your life. And it's important as we come to um, making steps in emotional maturity that we break free from the past. We break free from the, the ways in which our past has shaped us negatively. We don't, mean, we don't mean that you cut ties with your whole family of origin. You know, you become a believer and you're like, see ya, clowns, you know, I'm done with my family. I'm, I'm with Jesus and his people now. We don't mean that. We mean we're breaking free from the negative effect and the destructive patterns of our past that have shaped us and distorted our view of ourselves and of Jesus. And we learn new ways of living. And we get, as it were, reparented in the church. We spoke about that if you were here last week for the last session. We spoke about the importance of us embracing our limits, that God has designed each of us with limits, that we're not unlimited people. We have limits. And some of you might, you know, be thinking that well, I'm talking about other people. You know, and they're like, yeah, they've got significant limits. I know some of those people. Uh, not so much me, you know. Uh, but we all, we all have God-given limits. You, you can't be whatever you want to be. You can't. That, that's a false gospel. It's a lot of nonsense. You can't be whatever you want to be. You can. You can be everything that God has made you to be. Uniquely put you together and wired you and put you on the planet to be that. You can be all of that to the glory of His name. But you can't be someone whatever you want to be. And we spoke about how... As we embrace the limits God has given us, there's so much life in that. There's so much freedom uh, in that. And part of embracing our limits is embracing the limits of our humanity. That rest is really important. That weekly rhythms of Sabbath and rest and taking things slowly and leaning into our time and our relationship with God. And we spoke a lot about how you can go through a bunch of questions to discern what your limits are. Sometimes you have limits of season, of life stage. And um, a whole bunch of other things. You can listen to it. I'm not going to re-preach it. But uh, this week, we're talking about how you measure progress. How you measure progress. H how do you think you measure progress as a Christian? That's a great question, isn't it? 
church attendance, um, Bible memorization. Let's have a Bible quiz and see. You know, I, I, I had a friend. I still have a friend. I'll mention him by name, Pete. He used to be an elder here. But Pete is a Bible nerd of the rarest variety. And he's pr- he, he owns that. He's proud of being Captain Super Bible Nerd. He'd like lead, lead the team of the Bible nerds. We go on a guy's weekend kind of thing. I kid you not, Oaks. We're in the car all together. What are we playing? What are we playing? He has a, like a CD thing or an app kind of thing that is Bluetooth in three years. We are doing a Bible quiz in the combi while we're going. Yeah. I bet you you haven't been in a similar environment recently with Captain of the Nerd Herd Bible quiz team kind of thing. Is that progress that you choose to use your disposable time to do Bible quizzes with your mates? Maybe you give more than others. Maybe you serve more than others. How do you measure progress? I want to suggest to you that if you're taking notes, this is the, if there's a title, I don't, none of my sermons ever have titles, but this one sort of has a title, and it's this, let love be the measure of maturity. Let love be the measure of maturity. I think that if you want to measure, if you're making progress, the Bible makes a very compelling case that love is the measure of Christian maturity. Love is the measure of Christian maturity. Let me explain and read a couple of passages to us that help uh, bring this and to life and show you where, uh, where we get this idea. Um, let's, let's start with what Jesus said about love. Um, Matthew 22. If you have a Bible or a phone, you can follow along. Otherwise, these are, most of these are, I think, on the screen. Matthew 22, verse 35 to 40. And one of them, an expert in the law, these are people all surrounding Jesus, asked the question to test them. Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? There were a lot. There were a lot of commands in the law. So this is, a, this is a pointed question. Which is the greatest? He said to them, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. Do you see what Jesus is saying there? He says, all the law and the prophets so if you have a Bible and you hold up and you hold the Old Testament, which is this section on the left, if you're not used to the Bible, it's the, it's the majority of your Bible. That's what Jesus is saying. All the law and the prophets depend, so the fulfillment of everything that's been taught, everything that God has done, the fulfillment of all of that depends on only two commandments. There are a lot of commandments there. I don't know if any of you have ever tried to read through the Bible uh, from cover to cover, some of some people do that every year. It's a really good practice. But people really get stuck uh, if you start in Genesis. Like Genesis is super exciting. Yeah, wow, amazing. Exodus is wild. You know, you get to Leviticus and you're just like, wow. <laughs> Woo, all my Bible reading mojo has just got up and left, you know. And it's just like, Rook. it just feels like command after command after do, don't, don't, don't eat this, don't touch that, don't hang out with those people, yada, yada, yada. Um, what Jesus is saying is that in a way that sometimes needs explanation, everything there, all the law, all the prophets, can be summed up in what? Not in multiple, multiple commands, but in a simple command, hey, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind. And the second one, he says it's like that. 
love your neighbor as yourself. It doesn't just stop that you love God with everything that you are, but that your love for God overflows into a love for your neighbors. It's the surest way to tell if you're a Christian. Some people ask me, like, how can I know that I'm a Christian? It's simple. Do you love God with everything that you are? Okay, you're well, imperfectly. Okay, but that's fine. It doesn't talk about perfectly. It just says that that's your inclination to love God with everything. Because it's not a love that you sum up in yourself. It's a love that God instills and imparts into you. He fills you with his love for himself. And then he turns that towards others. If one of those is missing, if you love the people of the world without a love for God, you're not a Christian. There's lots of people who love the people of the world. They, do, they run charities. They're amazing. They, do, they have no love for God. They're not Christians. They're not believers in Jesus. There's people who say they love God and they have no love for their neighbor. You're not a Christian. 1 John says if you say you love God and you do not love your neighbor, the love of God does not reside in you. It's, a two, it's both. It's a love for God with all that we are that shows itself. It evidences itself in a love for neighbor. It's really important that Jesus summarizes. He said, these are the two most important, important commandments. I, I would say to people, some of these guys in the front are new Christians. They say, hey, there's a million things. When you read your Bible, it seems like there's a lot of stuff to do, doesn't it? Depending on where you read, it's like, I've got to do this, got to do this, got to do this. I agree that there's a lot of stuff that it feels like you should do, but you should really focus on this. We, you know, how should I live my life? Okay, hey, if I can answer that question, am I loving God with all my heart and my mind and my strength? Is God the most important person in my life? I seek to please Him in every area of my life. And when that's not happening, it's incongruent, then I'm trying to make corrections. I'm trying to change and pursue and walk in His ways faithfully. And I'm looking outside the world and I'm trying to find meaningful uh, applicable ways that I can love the people that God brings into my life. If those two things are there, I think you've got you know, 80% of Christianity uh, buttoned down and making massive progress. What else does Jesus say? He says this, John 15 verse 12, this is my command, love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this to lay down his life for his friends. What does the love of Jesus look like? Because, you know, I just said, like, you need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. But Jesus sort of levels up. He says, you need to love others as I have loved you. As I have loved you. These are some of the most astounding words that you'll find in the Bible. Jesus' command to you, if you're a believer in Jesus, to go and love others the way he's loved you. What did Jesus hold back from you? Don't answer. I mean, if you're not irregular here, when I ask questions, it's not really an invitation to shout out the answer. It's more like, what do you call those things? Rhetorical, reflective questions. Yeah, no, no, Judah, don't do it. Um, th th there's the question. How did, how did Jesus love you? What did he hold back from you? Yeah, the answer is nothing. And, and I'm not making this up. This is what he said. He said, love one another as I have loved you. So as you understand how I've loved you, that's the, that's the blueprint. That's the template for how you love each other. So you don't hold back from each other. You don't, you don't love, and then it runs out. It's like, look, I've loved you, like, for three weeks now, solidly. Uh, and you're annoying me. Like, you're just a walking red flag. This just, this is not good. Like, I'm done. I'm cutting you off. You're toxic. Yappa, yappa. No. Jesus says, you love one another as I've loved you. Imagine Jesus treated you like that. Oh, my gosh. Here you go again. I'm done. You, know, you did that thing again. You promised me a million times you wouldn't do that. There you are again, rolling in the mud, as it were. I'm done with you. Jesus doesn't, Jesus doesn't do that, doesn't do that to you. And he says you love others in the same way. I'm not saying this is easy. 
I'm just saying this is what it says. This is a miracle to be able to love like Jesus loves us. But this is the command. That's what Jesus says. We don't have enough time to go through all the other things. He says, what does Paul say about love? What does the Apostle Paul say about love? This is, the, this is a passage, if you've been to a wedding, you would have heard this. These days, it kind of gets vetoed at weddings because it's like it's done its time at weddings now. But it's still such a great passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Let me read from verse, let me read from verse 1 to verse 8. Pay attention. Don't switch off because you think you know it. Everyone switches off when you read this. They're like, oh, yeah, love is, love is, love. Listen, pay attention to what this is because this is what love is like. Paul says, if I speak human or angelic tongues but have not love, I'm merely a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Who wants to be known as that? Who would you like, which of you would like to have that as the kind of the scripter over your life? You know, you're on your tombstone. Here lies Dave Jones. Noisy gong. <laughs> clanging cymbal. <laughs> I'm just picking on him because it's easy. He sits in the front row kind of thing. You know, none of us want that as the banner over your life. You know, we all talk about how we're all just loving that person. We're so loving. Okay, let's, let's have a look at um, what it is. And uh, notice that, that you speak in human or angelic tongues. I mean, that's like leveling up, you know, isn't it? It's pretty impressive. Like, hey, you can do all of that, but if you don't have love, you know what you sound like? Gong, you're annoying. That's what you're, you're annoying. That's what, the, it's just emptiness. You just sound like dead religion. Verse 2, if I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, also impressive. And if I have faith that can move mountains but I don't have love, I have still got something. I am nothing. It doesn't mean anything if you have not love. Verse 3, and if I give away all my possessions, there's no one else signing up for that this morning, I'm pretty sure. Give away all my possessions, and I give over my body in order to boast. Give over my body as a martyr is what it means there, to boast, but do not have love. I gain nothing. You can give up all your stuff and sign up for martyrdom, and if you don't have love, you have nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It's not boastful. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking, it's not irritable, and doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but it rejoices in the truth. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things, and it endures all things. Love never ends. Somebody once said to me, the, the most helpful exercise that you can ever do is replace your name replace the word love with your name in that passage as you read it. So just do a diagnostic test to see how you're doing. Doug is patient. Doug is kind. Whoops. Okay, well, start again. Uh, Doug does not envy. Doug is not boastful. Doug is not arrogant. Just to see how, how on track am I? How, how much do I still have to go? How much help do I need from the Lord to live a life of love? Because that's the descriptor that comes at the end of the passage that Paul front loads it and says, hey, if you, if you don't have love, it doesn't matter how impressive you are in the natural as a person, you really have and are nothing. I mean, I don't know if the Bible can make a more compelling case than that. A loveless Christian is an empty Christian. A loveless person is, in Paul's words, a nothing. 
It doesn't mean that you don't have value and worth and all that kind of stuff. It just means that you're not, gonna con- you're not contributing much. You're, m- you're completely missing the point. I think the Bible makes a compelling case that Christians should be the most loving people on the planet. I'll say that again. The Bible makes a point that Christians should be the most loving people on the planet. We should be known for our love. Sadly, like if you chat to some of your non-Christian mates, if you just like read the news and you listen to the culture that's around us, as Christians we're known for a whole bunch of other things, aren't we? We're, we're a lot of us are known for, a lot of the church is known for what we're against. Not, not who we're for, it's just what we're against. We're against, we're against the gays, and we're against the, um, the Muslims, and we're against, um, who else are we against? Give me, help me out, Joe. I'm battling. No one. The trans people. We're against only those three. I'm sure we can do better than that. Hmm? We're against the government. Dave's an anarchist at heart. Yeah, he's against the government. <laughs> Nobody else is on Team Dave this morning. Yeah, we're against. We're against people who don't have the act together. We're, we're, against, we're against. We're against. We're just Christians are just angry people. We're just like uptight and just like the world's wrong and they're all in sin and la 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 la. And if you're going to come and join us, you need to get your act together. And we'll talk about a bit what that means for a couple of minutes. But I still think that the banner over the church and over the lives of Christians should be this. These are the most loving people I've met. These are the most loving people I've met. We're going to talk about a little bit about what is love. What is love? I was going to burst into that song. You know that Baby Don't Hurt Me. Do you know that song? Only the old people know. The youngsters are like, what on earth is up with that guy? Like, uh, who sang that song? What is love? Baby Don't Hurt Me. Anyway, terms, terms need defining these days. You can't just say this. You can't just say Christians should be the most loving people in the world and leave it there. Because when I say to you, you should be a loving person, Christians should be defined by love, everyone hears that differently. Because love means different things to different people. To some people, love means you walk around like a big kind of marshmallow. You're just like a big teddy bear. Like everyone just loves you. You love everyone. And you're just like dishing out hugs, as it were, in a metaphorical sense. You're never going to call anyone to any kind of change. The gospel never confronts anybody around their misbeliefs or unbeliefs or lifestyle or anything. It's just everyone is just love, 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 love. Everyone is like an Oprah show. Everybody just gets love and it's fine. You just stay the way that you are, and it's all hunky-dory. And I want to argue that the Bible doesn't actually present a, a, a picture like that. It doesn't. It does present a God of love. It doesn't present a God of love who's just like, hey, I love you, but it's cool. Just carry on however you want. Carry on however you want. Don't, don't feel like you need to make any changes. You don't have to repent. You don't have to turn your life around in any way. Remember the clarity of the call that Jesus comes with? He says what to people? Repent. We're going to talk about it when we baptize these guys. He says, repent and be baptized. Repentance means that you were walking in that direction and you encountered Jesus and you turned around because you're walking away from him and you then try to walk as best as you can with God's help in his ways. But there is a change. There's not a continuation of rebellion and walking away from God. There is a change of heart. I, I think the easiest way to describe it is that Love is embodied in a person. 
Love is embodied in a person, and his name is Jesus. Jesus is love. One John says to us that God is love. God is not loving. God does not act in love. God is love, and therefore he acts in loving ways and does loving things. But if you want to know what love is, love is a person. Love is God, and it's expressed to us in Jesus. And a couple of other scriptures I want us to look at before we finish. John 3, verse 16. Everyone knows this verse, don't they? This is a different translation. This is the CSB. Um, For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Do you know what another translation of that, probably a more familiar translation that people are used to, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son? You know what the mistranslation of that is? That for God so loved, like God was so stoked over the world that he gave his son. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean that. The emphasis of this passage is not that God was moved by the degree of his love. It's this. This is a better translation. It says, for God loved the world in this way that he sent his son. There is massive amounts of God's love, but it's not like God is just so like enamored with the world. He's just like, oh, they can do nothing wrong. It's so precious in my eyes. It's amazing. It's like, yeah, they are sinning. That verse, John 3.16, you know where its home is in the Bible? If you have a Bible, read up and read down. It's, it, it's in a context of referencing a, an event that happened in Numbers 21. Right back earlier in the Bible, the people of God were doing their own thing. God's people, Israel, they were doing their own thing. They got no real regard for God. They were mumbling as they often did against God. So what did God do? Yeah. He sent snakes. True story. He sent snakes, poisonous snakes amongst them. And the snakes started like chapsing people and they started dying. Like plenty, eh? Plenty. Not like five or ten. Plenty. Thousands of them are freaking out from the poisonous snakes that God, God sent amongst them because they were basically telling God to take a hike. So the people cry out to God. They say, ah, you know, like, oh, we're sorry. We, we, we're bad people. Help us. They come to Moses, who's leading them, and like they say, hey, Moses, you help us. And Moses is like, this doesn't look good. And Moses goes to God. He says, God, like, what's going on? Like, the people are dying. You sent the snakes. And God tells Moses, make a bronze snake. Make a bronze snake. And then once you've done that, then when people get bitten by the snake, um, hold up the bronze snake. And when the people look at the bronze snake, they'll be healed. So Moses does that. That was the pattern of Moses' life. Ask God, God tells him what to do, and most of the time he does it. So he makes a bronze snake, and now it's, that's what happens. People get charred by the snake. Moses holds up the bronze snake. They look at the snake, and what happens? They get healed. Every time. Bang, bang. And the people stop dying. The people stop dying because why? They're looking at the snake. So that's the immediate context of this. And it says, in the same way, in the same way God loved the world, he sent another one. He sent another one to be held up, not as a bronze snake, but on a cross, that those who are afflicted by the poison and under the death sentence of sin, like a poisonous snake's got a hold of you, those who look at the one held up on the cross, they will be healed. They will be saved. They will not die. That's what it means. It says that in the same way, as I've just been telling you the story, John, John says, 
in the same way that there was a, a bronze snake in the desert that people looked at and they were healed, so the Son of Man will come into the world and be lifted up, and those who look to him will not die. They will be saved. They will be healed. This is what love looks like. Love looks like God coming into our world. It looks like the incarnation. That's a fancy word for in the flesh. God puts skin on, and he comes into our world to rescue us, to show us what the Father's like, to reconcile us to God, to make us new, to enter into to our world. It's, it's, it's amazing. And as Jesus enters our world, what does he do? He calls people um, to following and obedience. I, I mean, I don't want to make too much of this, but you do find this in, in some Christian circles where Jesus is seen as just like, we love Jesus, he's just amazing, and like, he's just, like I said, like he just goes around hugging everyone, and he never ever calls anyone to any kind of change or any kind of following, and it's just like, I'm like, do you have a Bible? Go, go and read the Bible and then come back and let's chat about it again because that's not what you're going to see there. Jesus is like, everyone goes to Jesus. There's something about Jesus that doesn't matter what your life was like, people will, felt welcomed by him, which is a challenging point for you if you're a Christian. I hope you feel suitably uncomfortable and challenged by that. Does anyone who's not a Christian feel comfortable hanging out with you? Or are you too self-righteous, uptight, judgy, that they feel like, no, I need to give this person a bit of space. They claim to be the one who follows the God of love, but just hanging around with them is a bit, bit tricky, a bit off-putting. That's a challenge for us, to walk and be more like Jesus. But Jesus is also the one who calls people to repentance. He causes them to follow in Him wholeheartedly and to obedience. Jesus says some stuff that ruffles people's feathers. He doesn't just come teaching lovely things, or oh, Jesus is such a lovely teacher. You know, some of the stuff Jesus taught just claps you straight between the eyes. John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says to this, um, from verse 6, Jesus told them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you, you will also know my Father. Jesus is exclusive and inclusive. The world will have you believe that Jesus is just inclusive. Everyone can come. It's all cool. Like, it's like a big open house party. It doesn't matter. Don't you? There, there is that element where everyone can come. But Jesus says, hey, you only come to the Father through me. There's no alternative ways up the mountain. There is only one way. There's only one truth. And there's only one life giver. And it's me. That's what Jesus is saying. If you want to know the way... If you want to know the truth, if you want to know what life is, it's found in Jesus. You know Jesus, you know the Father. Then he winds it up in John chapter 14, verse 15. He says, if you love me, what? You will keep my commands. We don't talk about that enough, do we? If you love me, you'll keep my commands. This is the evidence of a heart that loves Jesus. It's one thing to say, yeah, Jesus is amazing. He loves me. He's my Lord and Savior. It's another thing. Jesus says, hey, if you love me, you will walk this out in keeping my commands. And here they are. This is it. This is what Jesus commands. He's, we have it recorded for us in the scriptures. So if you have a low regard for the Bible, um, you, need, you need to lean more into it because this is where we find out what Jesus commands of us. 
it's not okay that you just think everything is okay in your world and you can carry on living your life however you want. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. You'll, you'll do what I say. Let me close it up with this last thing, that, a practical thing. What, what do you, this is how, this is one way in which we can love people. There are many other ways we could do a whole 10 weeks on this. What is one way in which you can love people that models what the incarnation looks like? I think, what are, what are Christians really well known for? Talking. Talking and talking at people. We're amazing at telling people things. And that's how we train people to share the gospel. Get clear on this, God, and tell people stuff. Make, get their attention, make sure they listen, and then hit the road. Maybe take a couple of questions and then go on. You know? like, we're good talkers. We're good tellers. We are not brilliant listeners. Christians on the whole are not brilliant listeners. We're better at talking and telling. Pete Scazzera in his book talks about something called incarnational listening. He says, um, he quotes somebody who says that, um, I might get this wrong, he says the, the, dif- the difference between listening and being loved is so small that sometimes people can hardly tell the difference. The difference between listening, being listened to, and being loved is so small that people can hardly tell the difference. Think of the last time someone genuinely listened to you. Genuinely listened to you. Not this. This is not listening to people. These things are awful for listening. I would encourage you, if you have a phone and you're having a conversation with somebody, the phone disappears. Try it. And, and, And upside down on the table doesn't mean that it's gone. All it means is that you, the other person is slightly more important to you. Uh, get rid of the phone and actually be present with somebody. But ask, think of that. When was the last time that somebody listened to you? They looked at you and they repeated back to you, not in like this weird kind of like formulaic way, but they paid such attention to you. They were so vested in what you were saying. It wasn't about them. It was about you. And you, you feel loved in that, in, that, in that space. And Pete Gazzara says that uh, one of the ways that we model what Jesus' love is like to people is that we enter into their world. Like he entered into our world, we enter into their world by listening to them and loving them. And here's some questions for you as you seek to listen to people. When you listen to people, are you fully present or are you distracted? Are you fully present or are you distracted? This is, I know this is going to be so difficult for people. When the next time you're having a conversation with somebody, you're going to find... You could just take a little test here. Your mind is waiting to respond. That's most of us when we have a conversation. We're listening. Ooh, ooh. You know, like we're like a puppy, just waiting for them to take a breath so we can respond. Like just a break in the conversation. Wow, well, that reminds me. You know, <laughs> your point is lovely. It reminds me of a time when all this happened to me. No, we listen to them for a couple of minutes until we had a chance to respond. And it's not incarnational listening. People don't feel loved. When we listen for a bit and then vomit all over them, our stuff. Are you fully present or are you distracted? Second thing, are you loving or judging? It's difficult when you listen to people. This is a great test for people. I spend a lot of time having coffee with people and listening to them. When I answer myself this question, it was very difficult. Because I have good days and bad days. I listen to some of you and I listen to some other people. And I'm like, oh my gosh, here we go again. And I have to check my own heart and say, hey, man, you know, like, get off your religious high horse, your judgy horse. Like, listen to this person. Love them. This is what they're going through. This is their world. 
God is meeting them in their world and is wanting me to enter into their world to say, hey, let's look for the signs of grace in your life. Let's point you to the cross. Let's go there together and let's celebrate what he's doing in your life. You can either love people or you can judge them when you listen to them. Which path will you choose? When we listen to people, we can either be open or closed to being changed. Sometimes you hear stuff that like bumps up against you. Are you open to being changed by listening to somebody or are you close to that? A mate of mine has got a great phrase. He says, you can either be warm and weak or clear and cold. Warm and weak or clear and cold. This is a challenge for Christians, isn't it? Sometimes we're warm, big hugs, but we're a bit weak on the truth. Everyone gets a hug, but we are so backfooted in calling anyone out and in saying anything that's true to them. Otherwise, you get the gang who are clear and cold. They're just like the truth brigade. They're just like, bang, there it is. But it's just so cold. It's like, it's like a surgery kind of thing. It's not warm and clear is better. Very strong, warm relationships and clear around the scriptures. I want us to get on with baptizing, guys. So I'm going to leave it there and pray for us that God would help us to be the kind of people that the world loves to be around because we love them and we listen to them and we point them to the signs of His grace in their lives. Let's pray together. Then the baptism guys, so the baptism guys can go and get changed now uh, as the band come forward to, to lead us. Father, as we we consider these things uh, this morning, as we reflect on your words, Jesus, we we realize afresh that there's such a lack of love often in our lives. Uh, We're so often about ourselves. We're so often wrapped up in our own priorities and our own world, in our own heads, our own needs, that we, we don't, as your word says, prefer the needs of others above our own. It's almost like a miracle that you need to overcome our self-centeredness and our self-focused desires. And so we just look to you this morning and we say, Father, would you please help us? Would you help us to be a people defined by love? A people who would be willing to go out of our comfort, just like Jesus, in leaving the comfort of heaven to come into our world, that we would leave our comfort and we would go into uncomfortable places, that we would love people by listening, by exploring what you're doing in their lives, in their hearts, in their worlds pointing them to the one who they most desperately need. Um, and that we would, yeah, we would, we would be full of the, lo- the love that you, that you have, that we would love like you have loved us. We know that it starts with rejoicing again in the love that you have for us. And so we pray that you'd start with us there, slow us down enough that we would drink in and reflect again the life-shaping love that you have for us. And that we would go from that to love others with that same kind of love. Unless you help us by the work of the Holy Spirit, we will have neither love and nothing. And so we look to you. Would you help us? Would you pour out your love upon us even this morning in fresh ways? Strengthen us. Equip us. Turn our hearts towards others away from ourselves for our good and for your glory. We ask it. In Jesus' name, amen.